Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Let us open our Bibles, the precious words of God, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. What we want to take out of Romans chapter 4 is this simple. We want to live the life of faith of our father Abraham. And we have 13 plus chapters in the book of Genesis to describe it to us. So that we have an example to follow. Because by his faith and living the life of faith, we show ourselves to be the justified Righteous sons of God. Faith is an evidence of justification and righteousness. Works are evidence of the faith and just, and justification of justification and righteousness. And faith and works together are what the Bible expects of us and faith and works together are what Abraham showed in those 13 chapters that describe his life. The just shall live by faith is the word of God. The just do not become alive by faith, and the just do not get just by faith. The just live by faith. They walk through this world in faith toward God, and works proving that faith, thus giving the evidence of faith and works that they are the justified, righteous children of the living God. We believe in unconditional justification from before the world began, when we were chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ, by God our Father. He chose us in Christ before the world began that we would be without blame. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 describes it. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the legal price for our justification and obtained our righteousness on the cross of Calvary and by His resurrection. The Bible teaches us that, and I've quoted the verses earlier this morning. Then the Holy Spirit applies that work to us by giving us a new man in the new birth, that's created in righteousness and true holiness, so that we have a vital principle, a vital person inside us called the new man by our brother Paul that is truly righteous. And we are yet waiting for a day in which we will be made wholly righteous by sin being removed from these bodies because they'll be glorified in His presence and when we shall be formally declared righteous before the universe as the sons of God. Until then, we preach the gospel in order to tell us what God has done for us in those four phases of salvation, and for us to apply ourselves to bring forth the fruit that the Bible describes as the evidence that we are the just, righteous, justified children of God. Romans chapter 4, let me read to you the first eight verses. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Amen Amen. and amen. This is our beloved brother Paul's argument against the Jewish legalists that were his greatest opponent in the New Testament. I have preached four sermons already in this fourth chapter of Romans, and they are necessary foundational material for a person to understand these words and the words that follow. We had two sermons on the life of Abraham and two sermons on the justification and righteousness of Abraham last Lord's Day. The Apostle has from the 18th verse of chapter 1. Do you remember what it sounds like? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. From that verse 
to verse 19 of chapter 3, to verse 20 of chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. From 118 to 320, he condemned Gentiles first and then Jews as being hopelessly guilty before him. And we are in that number. Beginning at verse 21 with that holy and inspired but. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. With those words, to the end of the third chapter, the Apostle Paul presents the truth of justification and how sinners can stand just and righteous before a holy God. He says in verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's been describing that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Verse 24, being justified freely. So it's a free bestowal of justification. Being justified freely by His grace. It is demerited favor by which we are justified freely. Through the grace of God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Given by the grace of God. Free to men, expensive to God, because it cost Him the blood of His only begotten Son. Whom, that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 25, God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. This is God's faith in Christ's blood, because this is for 4,000 years of sins before Jesus died. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Amen. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. A person that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ gives the evidence because his faith is counted to him as the evidence for his righteousness, that he is righteous. Faith comes to us as a gift by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 tells us that we have obtained like precious faith through the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes first. It gives us faith. Faith is the evidence that God counts toward us as being His righteous sons. Amen. And so it can be declared. God can declare that He is righteous. Paul can declare that God is righteous. In justifying, how can a just God declare a sinner to be righteous? It's impossible without there being some wise and powerful plan of salvation designed by this holy and just God. And that wise plan was the substitutionary intervention of His only begotten Son who lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for each one of us. So that God can be declared righteous. He is righteous because He cannot acquit. He cannot overlook sinners. He must punish all sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So how can He be just and a justifier? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who purchased redemption for us. He punished Christ in our stead. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He should have bruised you and me. But He chose not to bruise you and me, though He will bruise many in hell, because He didn't bruise Christ for them. He bruised Christ for His elect. And not a single one of them can be lost. Because Jesus took the bruising for them. And that bruising was death itself. And the shedding of His blood for the remission of their sins. We come to this fourth chapter. Verses 1 through 3. The fourth chapter is, first of all, let me back up. Sometimes I get a little bit ahead of myself. My mouth gets going faster than my mind wants to go. When we come to Romans chapter 4, the whole chapter is committed to the subject of Abraham. Because in this epistle, like in Galatians, like in chunks of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, like in Hebrews, he has to oppose the Jewish mindset that surely something from the law of Moses goes along with Jesus Christ. Surely, circumcision is still of value. Surely, keeping the commandments, keeping the Sabbath day, goes along with the finished work of Christ. 
Paul has proven that that is not the case all the way to chapter 4. And now that he's in chapter 4, he's going to use Abraham, the greatest Jew of all, and show how he was justified. It is inspired wisdom. Do you want to learn how to write a letter? Then write a letter like the Apostle Paul wrote letters. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, he proved the condemnation of Gentiles and Jews alike. Then he made a short declaration of how we are justified. And then he says, what shall we say then about Abraham? Let's go ahead and pick the greatest Jew of all. Let's go ahead and pick the father of the Israelites. How was he declared righteous? This is going to undo you Jewish legalists. You make your boast of the law. You make your boast of Abraham. Well, let's go look at Abraham's life. Then in chapter 5, he's going to take everyone back to Adam. In 4, he takes them all back to Abraham to prove the way Abraham was justified rules out you Jewish legalists because he was not justified by circumcision or the law of Moses. In chapter 5, he's going to take all men back to Adam. And notice that we are all condemned in Adam. We are all condemned by a doctrine of representation. What some call original sin. What some call federal headship. We are sinners in Adam, even if you never sinned yourself. Thus, the Lord Jesus Christ did not have a father connecting him to Adam. He'll take us all the way back to Adam because we need a second Adam to come in for us. We need a second representative that will live righteously for us and save us. Amen. And that second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You were made a sinner in the legal aspects of heaven. 6,000 years ago, when Adam ate the fruit that his wife handed him. That is why all die. Because all are in Adam by our first birth. But a second Adam has come along for whom we are eternally grateful. The Lord Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. In this fourth chapter, the first three verses, Abraham was declared just and righteous by faith alone as the evidence of his righteousness without circumcision or the law. In verses 4 through 8, justification and righteousness are by faith in Paul's use of that word here. Lest God's a debtor, because there can't be any debt with grace. And lest grace be corrupted, because grace and works are mutually exclusive. In verses 9 through 12, God declared Abraham a justified man before he was circumcised. And I hope you use the timeline that our brother Newell prepared that I sent out with the preparatory email yesterday and it's on the front table here. It's good for you to have a mental picture of Genesis 11 through 25 to know when Abraham was declared righteous and when he was circumcised. He was declared righteous in chapter 15. He was circumcised a number of years later in chapter 17. And then he proved his justification in chapter 22 when he offered his son Isaac on an altar. Verses 13 through 15 of this chapter are going to show that Abraham was declared to be righteous without the law. Because the law of Moses came 430 years after God made a covenant with Abraham. Verse 16 is going to tell us God has arranged it this way to get salvation to his entire elect family. It is by grace, evidenced by faith, that the promise might be sure to all the seed. There is no other plan of salvation that is sure to all the seed. But the plan of salvation given in the Bible. There is no one God is trying to save that He doesn't save. There is no one God has offered salvation to that is not saved. Jesus Christ said He would lose none of them given to Him by the Father. He is going to present everyone to God. Hebrews 2.12 describes it. Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given Me. We were chosen in Christ and he'll not lose a single one of them. So verse 16 is a summary statement about making it sure to all the seed, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And you better be thankful for that. Verses 17, I'm repeating this, I want you to know Romans 4. Verses 17 through 22 describe the kind of faith that Abraham had. Are you willing to believe things that God says without regard to all the questions 
and circumstances and considerations that could be raised. Because that's Abraham's faith. He knew he was reproductively dead. He knew Sarah was reproductively dead. God said, Sarah is going to give you a son. And he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. You know these words. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. But he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, that what he had promised he was able also to perform. How do we practice this? When God said that he would preserve his words, do we believe that there is a preserved Bible in the world today? With his words in it. And that we can trust every word? We believe it. What if somebody argues with us about manuscript evidence? What if somebody argues with us about where was the Bible in 1549? We would say we don't care. We don't care how you're going to revive my reproductive powers. We don't care how you're going to revive the reproductive powers of my wife, Sarah. All we know is God promised and we believe it. Amen. That is faith. That is an argument that they will never deal with. They must build their case for other Bible versions on manuscript evidence and what they call science, what the Bible calls science falsely so-called. Textual criticism is not a science because no one was there to understand where our Bible came from. They do not have an explanation as to why we have 66 books. Why aren't the Catholics right with their 75? The difference is the faith of Abraham. We know that those books came to, those books written by the apostles came together very quickly. So that even while Peter was writing, he already knew about Paul's epistles. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 15, Paul has written some things hard to be understood as in all of his epistles. Wait a minute. Google says, Google tells me, and Wikipedia tells me, that we didn't have a Bible until 400 AD at some Roman Catholic council. Well, what are you gonna believe? Wikipedia? Or 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I'll choose the latter. Amen. You know why I'm going to choose it? Because I'm not going to consider how dumb the world is. I'm going to believe what God said. And when God said there's going to be fruit following His Word, so that you'll be able to tell which one is my Bible, I believe that. Amen. The Word of God effectually worketh in those that believe. Righteousness follows the Word of God. Men live by the Word of God. Riches follow the Word of God. Go read Proverbs chapter 8 and all that it describes about what follows the words of wisdom. This Bible has 400 years of fantastic fruit because God has put His divine stamp of approval on it. So we believe the King James Bible is God's Word by faith in His promises to preserve it and by faith in the description of fruit the New Testament gives. There's a few other reasons. That the internal integrity of it, the facts of the King James Bible, are superior to any other version. And the other reason is fools. Because it's fools that recommend all the other translations because they honor their education over the faith in God's Word. And God said He will take the wisdom of this world and turn it into foolishness. That's why every one of their Bibles has a different man killing Goliath than David. Our five-year-olds know who killed Goliath in the Bible. But every other translation of the Bible, 2 Samuel 21, 19, says that Elhanan killed Goliath. Baloney. I'm being gracious for public use. Do you know where all that came from? When you go through Romans chapter 4, there is a description of what kind of faith you ought to have. You regard circumstances and you regard, you disregard circumstances and you disregard considerations and you disregard skeptical questions believe he believed and do you know what we know about abraham the first time god told him that sarah was going to have a son what was his bodily reaction he fell on the ground because what was he engaged in so heartily laughing at god is that comforting to you because if you just read Romans 4, 17 through 22, you'd say, I don't know that I have faith like Abraham. But when you get to go back and read Genesis chapter 17, you find out that Abraham fell on his face laughing. About <laughs> Sarah? Hello? No, I don't think so. Not Sarah. Maybe if you get me a younger wife by about 30 years, we might be able to have one, Lord. But not Sarah. He laughed. And Sarah laughed. When it was her turn to laugh. But you know what it says in Hebrews chapter 11? By faith Abraham and by faith Sarah. Because by the grace of God, he washes away the imperfections in our faith. Do you know, 
Do you know what my favorite verse to remind the Lord of when I'm praying and letting Him know that my faith is weak and it shouldn't be as great as it should be? It's Psalm 103, verses 12 through 14, where it says, He remembereth our frame that we are dust, and like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. Amen. So kids, just come to me and say, I'm only 27 years old. Will you have mercy? I'll probably have mercy on you. Because the Lord pities us. That is wonderful. That's all in Romans chapter 4. Then, and then, do you know what it says in verse 23? The last little part of chapter 4? Now it was not written for his sake alone. You mean Genesis 15, 6 wasn't written for us to know about Abraham? It was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What does the word impute mean? The New Testament, right here in this chapter, uses four synonyms. Impute is a synonym for the word account. Account is a synonym for the word count. Count is is a synonym for the word reckon. Those four verbs are used in this chapter, Galatians 3, James 2, and other places as synonyms. They mean that God looked at Abraham's faith and considered, and regarded, and esteemed, and declared him to be a righteous man on the grounds of the evidence of his faith. That is what the passage means. Abraham was not a condemned reprobate in Genesis chapter 14, and became an elect justified man in Genesis chapter 15. All that happened in Genesis chapter 15 is that God made a formal official declaration that Abraham was a righteous man on the grounds of the evidence of his faith. And if you ever read Genesis, you'd know that. It's just one little verse. Genesis 15, 6. Those five verses there before it, God told Abraham, when Abraham was whining to him that he didn't have a child, and the only male heir he had in the house was Eliezer that he had bought in Damascus. What am I going to do? Lord, you leave me childless. The Lord said, come outside. Now, count those stars and tell me how many there are. So shall thy seed be. You know what it says? Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. That's all that it says. That is the most important passage in the entire Bible about justification if we measure it by the frequency of its quotation in the New Testament. That right there. The next verse is on a new subject. Off goes the Lord. Off goes the Holy Spirit. We have one verse. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed this declaration, this promise of God, that he was going to have a seed as multitudinous as the stars in the heavens. And the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham did not become righteous that day. Abraham had been a righteous man in the eternal phase of salvation from eternity. Abraham became a righteous man legally at the cross of Calvary when Jesus died for him with God looking forward for 4,000 years by faith and forbearance. Abraham became a righteous man by regeneration sometime before this or he would not have believed in God because it's only the new man, the spiritual man, that discerns spiritual things and believes them. He, Abraham did not change one whit in Genesis 15, 6. Nor did Abraham's legal standing in heaven change one whit in Genesis 15, 6. What changed? We had a verse that said in writing that God considered Abraham a righteous man on the grounds of the evidence of his faith. Had Abraham been faithful before Genesis... You all know this well, don't you? I don't need to repeat myself, do I? Because you know it well. In fact, you could get up and preach and I could say amen. And you're going to be able to defend this. This is why we repeat. Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. His nature didn't change that day. His standing in heaven didn't change that day. What happened? God gave a verse... By looking at something Abraham did and declaring it as the evidence that shows a man to be righteous and have righteousness on him. 
so that Paul could use it in the New Testament to crush Jewish legalists. In verses 1 through 22 of Romans 4, and then in verse 23 through 25, give it to us. That if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same as going outside and looking up at the stars and realizing, I can't count them all, but that's how many my seed will be. It's the same thing. It's the evidence of our justification. Because as many as believe, we're ordained to eternal life, and we could go on and on with those verses. Listen, you've got to remember this timeline. Do you have it in your head? Do you need to paste what Brother Newell prepared on your refrigerator and pass it every day, the 20 or 30 times a day that you head toward that big white box that has all your goodies in it? Do you have the timeline? Genesis 15.6 is what Paul quotes here, what Paul quotes in Galatians 3, and what James quotes in James chapter 2. Was, did Abraham have faith in chapter 14 when he took on four kings with 318 trained servants? Did he have faith when he met Melchizedek and paid tithes of all? Amen. Did he have faith when Melchizedek blessed him? Yep. What was Melchizedek blessing an unjustified, condemned, reprobate man who wasn't born again? I speak as a fool. Was Abraham already born again, justified, righteous, full of faith in chapter 14? Right. Was he in chapter 13? If we go all the way back to chapter 13... In his gracious dealings with Lot. Oh, yeah. How about chapter 12? When he kept, when we, as we read through those chapters, did he keep building altars and calling upon the name of the Lord? He had done it in 11. He had done it in 12. When did he first show his faith? When he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God said, get out of this place and go into a land that I'm going to show you. Hebrews 11, verse 8 tells us that's when he first began showing faith. That was many years in front of Genesis 15. I am repeating to you that the most quoted statement in the New Testament about an example of justification is what is said about Abraham, and it is said in Genesis 15, 6, not a thing in his nature changed, not a thing in heaven changed. It was a formal declaration that a man with faith like this, God counts such faith as the evidence that he is a righteous man, puts it in writing so that we can know, how do I know that I am a justified, righteous man? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I know several things about you. God chose you in Christ before the world began. Jesus died for you on the cross. The Holy Spirit has already regenerated you in order for you to believe. And that if you are buried... God will raise your body from the dead in the final phase of salvation called glorification. Amen. How do we know that? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we don't just stop with believing. We don't believe in sola fide. Because the Bible says, can faith save him? Not a chance. Right. James chapter 2. Amen. Not a chance. Faith is not enough evidence. You've got to add to your faith virtue and to virtue... Knowledge, and to knowledge, godliness, and to godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. Second Peter chapter 1. And if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. But an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is glorious. We give all the glory to God for an unconditional gift of eternal life. And yet the only way that we know that that gift is ours is by living a life of fruitful good works. Amen. That is the ultimate in balancing the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. The ultimate. We don't tell somebody who mouths some little sinner's prayer that they can write that date in their Bible and know that they're going to heaven when they die. There is nothing like that taught anywhere in the Bible. Faith can't save you. Faith plus works saves you. You say, well, why did Abraham say faith? In Romans chapter 4. Because he was dealing with an enemy called the Jewish legalists. He wasn't dealing with our modern society of Arminianism. He was dealing with Jewish legalists and comparing Abraham's faith with their ambition and their doctrine of circumcision and Moses' law. All so important, brethren. When you study the Bible, you must start with a Bible perspective. You start with presuppositions. Every man starts with presuppositions. Those presuppositions are based 
on knowing the 31,102 verses in the Bible and which verses apply to the particular topic that you are on. The first rule that we learned, my brethren, about hermeneutics, the first rule, and we are told in the Bible it's the first rule. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the, for the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There is one author to the Bible. Therefore, all 31,102 verses have to come together and teach one consistent, coherent, solid doctrine of truth. Amen. There are no contradictions. So we start with that perspective when we come into a chapter like Romans 4. We see Romans 4. We understand why Paul is using Abraham because he has to silence the Jews who are trying to make claims that Circumcision is the way to heaven. Never forget how important that was in the New Testament. So that as you read through Acts and the epistles, you can understand many of those verses by realizing the opponent that Paul was refuting. Remember the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15? Paul was up there in Antioch of Syria, and up come teachers. Well, it says down, because they went down in altitude, but they went up on our globe. It says down. They came down from the altitude of Jerusalem because they came from Jerusalem to teach those Gentiles in Antioch that men, Gentiles, had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas said, this is, this is not true, and we are going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to end this. And they went to Jerusalem and had the council in Jerusalem. Peter explained how Cornelius' household had been justified, the Gentiles, without circumcision or Moses' law. Then Paul explained his preaching travels on his first trip. And then James stood up and explained that Amos chapter 9, 8, 9, Amos chapter 9 was fulfilled in what Peter and Paul were describing about Gentiles being converted. And they sent a letter to all the churches saying, We, the apostles and elders of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are going to lay upon you no other things than these four. And those things were only temporary. Now, don't eat blood, don't eat meat, strangled meat, and so forth. Nothing in there about circumcision, nothing in there about the Sabbath day, because all that stuff was gone. Sorry, Seventh-day Adventist, sorry. But I'm not very sorry. All that was gone. And you've got to remember that as you read the New Testament, as to how much Paul was having to fight these Jewish legalists, the whole epistle of Galatians. They had been bewitched from the gospel. They had fallen from grace. Not fallen from grace legally. Not fallen from grace eternally. Not fallen from grace vitally. Not fallen from grace finally. But fallen from the proper understanding of grace. Because they were thinking that they were justified by the law. And Christ said, whosoever of you think that you're justified by the law, Christ has become of no effect. You've taken away the purchased blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you add anything to justify yourself other than that, you... Make Christ's death of no effect. It is our overall perspective that helps us understand and interpret the Word of God. We start with a perspective when we come to a chapter. When we look at one verse, we let 31,101 other verses guide us in that verse. Or we will end up with verses banging against each other and inconsistencies in our doctrine. For instance... We come to the Bible with a presupposition about baptism by reading everything there is to know about baptism. We understand that baptism does not save. As soon as we say that, we are in a 5% minority of all Christians. 95% of all who call themselves Christians, of the 2.2 billion that claim to be Christians on earth, 95% believe that baptism saves. As soon as they made that false assumption in about 350 A.D., they start doing other things. If baptism saves, then we need to lower the age of baptism to get children involved in case they die. Mommies will be happy if we can guarantee their children in heaven. So they start infant baptism. If baptism saves and there's not enough water to get a person all the way under, then we can sprinkle or pour so they invent sprinkling and pouring as the mode. If baptism saves and you're the Mormon church, 
and you know that no one was baptized before 1830 by Joseph Smith, then you have baptism for the dead so that you can go get baptized for your dead relatives so that you can get your whole family tree in heaven because one false assumption, one false error, one heresy, one heretical point of doctrine, baptism saves. We start, baptism does not save. Then when we look at a verse... That if we went to it by itself, it looks like baptism might save. For instance, Acts twenty-two sixteen, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Whoa! Whoa! Lord, why did you write it that way? I wrote it that way so the Catholics would believe that baptism saves. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from the Church of Rome. Is there a verse in the Bible that tells me to be thankful always to be saved from the church of Rome? Amen. Would somebody bless my heart by telling me, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's in the New, you're scared. Second Thessalonians 2.13, brethren. That's the whole chapter about the man of sin. It says God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they, all, that they might be damned who receive not the love of the truth. But do you know what it says in the next verse? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brother and beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. What salvation is under context right there? To be saved from the lies and the deception of the man of sin. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We go to Acts 22, verse 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. <laughs> we rework our collar. Because we're going to be fair with the Word of God. Right. You know, the Church of Christ, this is one of their five smooth stones by which they slay Baptist preachers. We go to Acts twenty-two sixteen: Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. But we know 1 Peter three twenty-one: The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Thank you, Lord. Baptism is a figurative salvation of our sins being washed away. Thank you, blessed God. We know that our sins are washed away at the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we find out that baptism is figurative salvation. We look at Acts 22, 16. Saul of Tarsus, arise, and I'm going to bury you in water, and I'm going to raise you out of water in a picture of what the Lord that you met on the road to Damascus did for you. And by that figurative emblem, you will wash away your sins figuratively. Because what does 1 Peter 3.21 tell us? And it is the best verse in the Bible on baptism. It tells us that baptism is the answer of a good conscience. And it does not put away the filth of the flesh. Ah, Thank you, Lord. Brethren, when we understand that there was an event in 70 A.D. in which the God of heaven brought Roman armies into the land of Israel and leveled that temple... When we hear about that and we learn about it and we are given a little bit of instruction about it, we then look at the Bible and at least 50 passages are all of a sudden viewed differently. Because we come into the Bible with the knowledge of an event that is ignored in most places today so that they do not understand Malachi. They do not understand Daniel, the last three chapters. They do not understand Deuteronomy 28. They do not understand what John was talking about with a baptism of fire. They do not understand why John described an axe being laid to the root of the tree. They do not understand the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ about him burning up a city. They do not understand the words of the Lord Jesus Christ looking at Jerusalem and saying they're going to dig a ditch around you and they're going to hedge you in on every side and lay you even with the ground. They do not understand Jesus saying all these things shall come to pass on this generation. There are 50 verses, 50 passages plus that we understand by coming at the Bible with a big biblical perspective. Instead of coming into the verse and working outward, we go into the verse with what the rest of the Bible teaches us. That's the first rule of Bible study, and we do that right here in Romans chapter 4. That is why we have spent so much time, including this morning, talking about Abraham and our salvation. When we go back and look at Abraham, the Bible shows very clearly that that man was already righteous, justified, born again, long before he got to Genesis 15. Then we look into Romans chapter 4. We understand Paul's reasoning here. He is going to use the prime example of the Jews. 
the one they loved the most, Abraham. John had to deal with it. Jesus had to deal with it. We have Abraham to our father. We were never in bondage to any man. My wife and I were laughing last night, thinking about those words in John chapter 8. Jesus said to, to men that appeared to believe on him. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He did not say, write this date in the flyleaf of your Bible, because you're all going to heaven. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you know what they said? We've never, we've never been in bondage to any man. Yeah. Clink, 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 as it... Roman soldiers walk down the street. You know, we've never been in bondage to any man. As Daniel describes the captivity in Babylon, we've never been in bondage to any man. As they spent 215 years in Egypt, but we've never been in bondage to any man. Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you would treat me the way Abraham did. We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. If God were your father, you wouldn't be doing this to me. Ye are of your father the devil. That's what Jesus said to men who believed on him. Go read John chapter 8 sometime. This is the word of the Lord. Faith and works are the evidence. We approach the Bible with a, pers- with a big biblical perspective. And I'm only going to take a few more minutes. And I didn't, get any, I didn't make any progress, but I don't care. I, I, I'm doing the best I can with Romans chapter 4. If we didn't have Arminians to fight, we could blow through Romans chapter 4 in one or two sermons. Because all that is in Romans chapter 4 is Paul taking the greatest Jew of all time and showing that he was justified and declared righteous by God without circumcision and without the law of Moses because both of them came far too late. They're both after Genesis 15. And then it describes Abraham's faith and it tells you, if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same as going outside and believing the promise to Abraham about the stars. It's the evidence of your eternal life and that you're a justified righteous man. Therefore, being justified by faith, Romans 5 goes on, we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Romans 4 is easy, but because we have heard so much Arminian drivel in our lives, I have to undo it. Abraham didn't change in Genesis 15, 6. His nature didn't change, and his status in heaven didn't change. His name was not written in the book of life. The angels did not burst out, there's a new name written down in glory. In Genesis 15, 6. There's no new names written down in glory. That song is heresy. All the names in the book of life are written there before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8 tells us that when we were chosen in Christ. What's the perspective that we approach passages like this? We approach a passage like this with the perspective of seven proofs of unconditional salvation. And they teach us the truth. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Very quickly. And I mean quickly. We approach a passage like Romans chapter 4, Genesis 15, 6, with a biblical perspective so that we do not violate the first rule of Bible study, which is in 2 Peter 1.20, that we cannot allow any contradiction. The first proof of unconditional salvation is man is unable to do anything to please God in his natural state. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 teaches us that. And you hath he quickened? who were dead in trespasses and sins. I've told you this story before about going to the doctor at White Oaks Baptist Church across the street from Bob Jones University. And after he had preached on a Sunday evening, when I was there, I asked him, I said, what does the word quicken mean in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1? And he said, it means to convict. And you hath he convicted, who were dead in trespasses and sins. My brethren, it doesn't mean convicted. Quickened means to make alive. Quickened means to make alive. I know this is a pitiful illustration, but remember, I only use a few because I'm not good at that. And I don't have any books at home about sermon illustrations. But if you cut your fingernail, it doesn't hurt. But if you stick a hat pin under your fingernail, it hurts because it runs into something that is called the... <laughs> now you know what the word means, don't you? It's, it's all the better I can do. Quick. When the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful, first... Hebrews 4.12, do we all know the verse? For the word of God is quick and powerful. Does that mean the Bible is fast? Is it talking about the Bible at all? Not a chance. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession of faith. So what's Hebrews 4.12 talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is he alive? Is he powerful? Is he sharper than a two-edged sword? Is he a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? Can he divide between your joints and marrow? And between your soul and spirit? Praise God. I grew up believing that that verse was about the Bible. I hung around with guys at Bob Jones who had a little ring on their belt with Hebrews 4.12 because it was a verse to prove the Bible. That verse doesn't have a thing to do with the Bible. The Bible can't do a single thing that is in 12, 13, or 14, and all those verses are describing the living Lord Jesus Christ, because after all, His name is the Word of God. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. My father and I used to sit reel to reel, R.B. Theme Jr. out of Texas, every sermon. Oh, I loved his voice. It still gives me chills. He was a colonel in the Air Force. He ran some of the most successful raids against the oil fields in Romania during World War II. Colonel theme. Turn the tape on. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. My, I was just a little ten-year-old. I'd have goosebumps running all over me. He didn't even know what the verse meant. Didn't even know what the verse meant. Thank you, Lord, that we're babes. Let's tell him right now, Heavenly Father, we are babes. We will freely confess that we are ignorant and foolish and stupid. In the eyes of this world and in our own eyes. But we thank you that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. When the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful, it means he's alive. Now that was a long rabbit trail for Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past... Ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. There's two different kinds of people in this world. Vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, but that's not, let's not go there. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The Bible declares, proof number one, that salvation must be unconditional, is that man does not have the ability to do anything to please God because he is dead in trespasses and sins. When God told Adam and Eve, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, he meant it, we believe it, no matter what the devil says, and no matter what Arminians say. The gospel is not medicine for a sick man. The gospel tells about a creator that resurrects dead men. This is the gospel. It's an unconditional gift of eternal life. The second proof is found in Romans chapter 9. Now remember, there's 20 more verses, at least, for the first proof that man is unable to please God. But let's go to Romans chapter 9, because we have to race through these before we break. Romans chapter 9, the second proof that eternal life, that justification, is an unconditional gift given to men, is by the fact that the... Bible denies man's will or man's works having anything to do with it. The first proof was that man is unable in his natural state to do anything pleasing to God. He's an enemy of God. God is not in all his thoughts. The second proof is the Bible denies it. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Romans 9. And again, we could multiply these witnesses over and over again. Romans 9, 15, he saith to Moses, I will... Have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now would you please tell me whose will is in Romans 9.15 and why in the world would God redundantly repeat Himself so many times? I speak as a fool. He's not redundant. He's glorious. And I love this verse. Whose will is in Romans 9? I will love whoever I want to love, and I will have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. 
Verse 16 is a conclusion. You should be able to draw a doctrinal conclusion from verse 15. Paul does for us. Verse 16. So then. So then what? So then because of verse 15, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The Bible denies man's will and man's works. That's willing and running to have anything to do with obtaining God's mercy. It is by God's choice to bestow it on whomever He will. That is why that verse that they never finish, that sentence that they never finish in John 1.12, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. That doesn't end with a period. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. Amen. The will of the flesh is not involved in being born again. Therefore, you do not go to a man in the flesh and get him to say something in order to be born again because the will of the flesh is not involved in being born again. The will of man is not involved in being born again. Therefore, it is not a preacher. It is not an organist. It is not a prayer warrior. It is not a missionary that gets anyone ever born again because the will of man and the will of the flesh nor blood, your descent doesn't have a thing to do with it either, has anything to do with being born again. It is of God. John 1.13 You know, they all love Pilgrim's Progress. Written by John Bunyan, they should. A great book written by the tinker turned Baptist preacher who spent most of his ministry in prison. Do you know what his final deathbed sermon was? I'll get it for you if you want to read it. It was John 1.13. Not John 1.12. John 1.13. Because he knew that his hope of eternal life was not based in the will of his flesh or the will of man, but on God. The Bible denies it. The third proof that salvation has to be unconditional and that justification and righteousness are unconditional is that faith and works are the result of salvation, not conditions for it. And the Bible teaches us that in 20 or 30 places. Look at Philippians chapter 2. I'm just picking one. You have the outlines. They're on the Internet. We're not ashamed. But you've got it, brethren. Did you understand when I say it to you that if you run into a Church of Christ preacher who's sharp, and most of them are sharper than Baptist preachers, because all they've done is study to be sharp when, when they're dealing with Baptist preachers. Alexander Campbell said, one debate's worth a thousand sermons. They used to go into the cities of Tennessee and Kentucky, post a notice that they were challenging the Baptist pastor to a public debate. They would get that pastor in public and tear him to shreds, and they would build a church in that town named the Church of Christ, they're called Campbellites. Right. We're not going to ruin the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with the followers of Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell, his father. That's what they would do. And I'm teaching you right now how we approach the Bible. We don't let them take us into Acts 2.38. That's one verse out of 31,102. That's why they say with an Acts in 2.38, I'll whip any Baptist preacher in the world. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You better know the whole Bible and be able to deal with the whole Bible when you look at any individual verse. Because no individual verse is of any private, individual, separate, or distinct interpretation. It all fits the whole because it has one author. For the scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. We are at proof number three. If you ever do anything toward God, it's because it's the result of salvation, not a condition for it. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Wherefore, verse 12 of Philippians 2. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that doesn't sound very Arminian, does it? If you've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you ever will or do anything that pleases God, it's because God worked it in you. Praise his great and glorious name. Let's make sure we're working it out. Let's work it out today. Let's work it out at break time. What God has worked into us. The fourth proof is that Jesus saves alone. Let me read it to you. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. It is the doctrine of representation. You were made a sinner by Adam sinning. That is why Romans 5.12-14 through 14 say that from Adam to Moses death reigned. 
even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Why did they die? Why did everyone die between Adam and Moses? Because of Adam's sin. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It doesn't matter if you knew about Adam. It doesn't matter if you reject Adam. It doesn't matter if you reject the first three chapters of Genesis. God holds you accountable for Adam eating that fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You say it's not fair. He was 1,000 times smarter than you, and he only had one commandment to keep. In a perfect world, with God as his friend, without a sin nature, he was one million times your superior. God is very fair. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so, that's an adverb meaning in the same way, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Praise God. Proof number four, salvation is by Jesus Christ alone. We give Him all the glory. He is the only Savior. No one cooperates or helps Him do His work. He did it by Himself. The same way that we're made sinners by the first Adam, we're made righteous by the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All that are in Adam by our first birth, we die. All that are in Christ, and how do we get in Christ? According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. All that are in Christ shall live. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The fifth proof. The ordinances were never designed to bring eternal life. And that includes the gospel. The gospel is to tell the elect about what God has done for them. That's why Acts 13, 48 says, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I remember sitting in Acts class at Bob Jones University. And I remember a student asking Dr. George Dollar, Ph.D. that he is, that wrote the book on fundamentalism. I remember a student asking, what does it mean in Acts 13, 48? Now, I wasn't, the Lord hadn't brought me along quite enough yet to appreciate the question, but I wish I could go back now and take that boy to lunch. What, what did the Lord mean in Acts 13, 48 when it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed? Well, that means disposed. The word ordained means disposed. As many as were disposed to eternal life believed. Now, does that change the meaning of that text just a little tiny bit? That's no better than the man across the street at White Oaks Baptist Church. As many as were ordained, predestinated, chosen, and fixed by God before time began to eternal life. The gospel. We know that baptism is a figure of our salvation. Baptism was never designed to save. The Lord's Supper was never designed to save. Sorry, Catholics, we don't believe in your Mass, and we reject it. Lutherans, we reject yours as well. Presbyterians, we reject yours as well. We don't take those words, this is my body, literally, synecdically, or metatimically. We take them metaphorically. Jesus was saying, this is a representation of me. Sixth proof. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Examples in the Bible of unconverted elect. That's people going to heaven that did not believe the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is an example. One example of a category. We can't give anyone hope from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because they're not listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And neither do we believe that most of the world is wandering around rubbing Buddha's belly and they're unconverted elect. This is God's church. This is God's church that we're describing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an example of men who did not believe the gospel and were chastened for it and lost their physical lives, but they ate and drank of Christ. First five verses of 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I have preached an entire sermon on this when I preached verse by verse through the epistle of 1 Corinthians, and you should go back and look at the extensive notes that are on the website for this passage, but this is proof number six. There are examples like this in the Bible of men, elect, eating and drinking of Christ, partaking of Him, who were the church of God that didn't believe the gospel. Because their gospel was, take the promised land. And they refused because they were afraid. So verse 5 says, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It doesn't say a thing there that God was not well pleased with them, so He sent them to hell. Hello? They're two very different things. That is why there were so many saints at this very church in the next chapter that Paul said they... We're sleeping early. What does that mean? 
they were already out in the church cemetery, supine, in a box, six feet down. Many had already died because they were abusing the Lord's table. Does the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 11 that they were in heaven? Absolutely. Because Paul said, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. When God chastens us physically, even taking our lives, that is not an evidence of damnation. That is an evidence of salvation. 1 Corinthians 11. Samson. In Hebrews 11. Here we have an example of a whole category. There were only two believers of the nation that came out of Egypt. Only two. And it doesn't include Moses. Only two. Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two that made it in. God was displeased with those people on a natural basis for their physical lives. And so he dropped their carcasses in the wilderness. That group of people didn't have anything in relationship to the Philistines or Egyptians whatsoever. They were God's people. Go read about them in the book of Deuteronomy. God loved them. God chose them. God chastened them as a father his own children. There isn't one chance that they were not God's elect. Individually, that's that's between God and them to sort out. But the vast majority, the majority of them, the children of God, the church of God, the church in the wilderness, ate and drank of Christ. The seventh proof that salvation must be unconditional gift from God to us is it's the only way that gives God all the glory. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, my favorite point of all. Oh, didn't Paul tell us in Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? Where is boasting then? With what I have just described in 23 through 26, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness. When Paul said all that, he comes to verse 27, he said, where is boasting then? It is excluded. How about Romans chapter 4? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. But not before God. God is not going to let anyone glory before Him for anything they did or anything anyone else did for them. Except the Lord Jesus Christ who did it all for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called... But they have chosen God. No, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. We are nothings. And God has made us somethings so that He can prove Himself to be great to the world of somethings, that he chose nothings and made them somethings. And he made the somethings into nothings to the glory and praise of his name because the next verse says, 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God has chosen us, the poor, despised, weak, and nothings. But of him, notice it's God's choice in 27 and 28, and look at verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. How do we get into Christ Jesus? Of Him. God chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians 1.4 But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. All glory to God. God has saved us through Jesus Christ. Seven proofs. That eternal life is an unconditional gift of God. How do we know that that gift has been given to us? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue knowledge. And to knowledge the other things listed in 2 Peter chapter 1. That is how we know. We live the faithful life of Abraham. Who believed God enough to come out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Are you willing to come out of your sinful existence? And your sinful habits? To a land that God will lead you to. 
who believed in chapter 15 and verse 6, God's promise about a seed, who in chapter 22, God could say, now I know that thou fearest me. Well, God knew all along that Abraham feared him, but that is written for your sake and my sake, that his act in verse in chapter 22 is greater as an evidence of eternal life than his faith in chapter 15. And that's what James would argue in James chapter 2 when he says, when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, then it was fulfilled what was written about him in chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When you live the life of faithful Abraham, you believe God. You believe the record that God has given of his son, Jesus Christ. You call upon his name. You believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. You confess with your mouth that he is the only hope of your salvation. And then you add to that faith the virtue and the good works and the fruitfulness that the New Testament describes and that Abraham himself had. You are willing to pay the cost of discipleship. That is the evidence of eternal life. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's the evidence of eternal life. That is Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Just like it was counted to Phinehas in Psalm 106 for putting a javelin through two fornicating Israelites and a Midianitish woman. Just like it was declared of Abel in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 3 or 4, that he obtained witness that he was righteous by bringing the right sacrifice to God. For to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Can't be true. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. When you believe that God justifies ungodly men. Paul didn't write and say that our faith should believe that God justifies believers. Or God justifies the faithful. It says our faith is to believe that God justifies the ungodly. Amen. That is faith that is trusting God for his mercy. Because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But how do we know that mercy is on us? By believing the record that he has given. Shows that we're born again which means that we were justified at the cross, which means we were elect before the foundation of the world. And what would Peter say? You can make your calling and election sure. And if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't look back at some little date of saying a sinner's prayer. We don't look back at the date of our baptism. We look right now at our lives, and have we added, have we given all diligence to make our calling and election sure by adding to our faith the evidence that our faith is sincere and real? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to his elect.